God gives generously without reproach. We can come to him and he will give us the wisdom we need. This is why, as I was pointing out earlier, reading God's word never grows old because we're going again and again looking for wisdom. The spirit of God will show us what we need for the trial. I'm encouraged to be here, brothers. I've been longing for a time since uh, the last time I was here was at the conference, and I've been hoping for a chance to come back and offer some encouragement. I don't expect I'm going to introduce any new theological idea to you, brothers. You're well-learned and taught. Um, uh, Certainly there was a time when I would love to come to a church and uh, teach on the imprecatory psalms or on the impeccability of Christ, just get some big words, you know, just talk some deep theological thing you got to wrestle with. But here today, our goal is just to go to God's Word and find some grace for help in the time of trials. Uh, I don't need to share uh, with you all uh, just uh, how difficult uh, trials are. Uh, As Christians, we've been promised, guaranteed, that we'll have trials. And uh, I'm thankful for that because it makes us like our blessed Savior. And it causes us to trust in him and look to him more. So let's pray and ask the Lord for help as we come to his word. Heavenly Father, just thank you for your goodness, just giving us this time together, allowing us to open up your word, to sing songs to your praise and to your glory. Certainly, as we heard earlier, you are worthy of our praise. You alone are worthy of worship, Lord. And so we just ask that this time of speaking and listening would be an act of worship from our souls, Lord, and that we would love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength here as we open up your truth, Lord. Would you give help to your saints? Would you give help to me as I communicate your word, Lord? And would you just continue to give us a sense of your presence as we look to your dear Son? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. James chapter 1. I've had the blessing of working through James with the church and temple, and I've found it to be very encouraging and helpful for the saints. So we'll start in chapter 1 here. Graces for our time of trouble. A rather lengthy section compared to other shorter ones. We'll go down through verse 11 of James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So James 1, 1 through 11. We'll dig in here with an interesting note. 
Did you know that James is most likely the earliest written letter to the church? When you look at it chronologically, our scripture is not put in chronological order, right? It's most likely one of the earliest messages given to the church, somewhere around 48 AD. So, in a sense, we're standing in this beautiful stream of church history here, where the, the earliest words that were written down for God's people are being heard by you and I. I find that very encouraging that the challenges the church had then are the challenges the church has now. The encouragement the church needed then is the encouragement that we need today. And so James, writing this epistle, which uh, I'm convinced is most likely a sermon message, just in its short brevity and in its pointed nature of just digging right in and getting right to the heart of the matter, it seems that this letter, this sermon for the early church is one that we can gain great encouragement from. To get started, I'll take two points from the first verse, James 1. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is not James, the brother of John. You all know this. This is James, the half-brother of the Lord, known as James the Just. He was, I'll just remind you, an eyewitness of the resurrection, according to 1 Corinthians fifteen seven. He gave the final judgment at the Jerusalem council. Do you remember Peter, James, John, over there in Acts chapter 15? He was named among those who seemed to be pillars of the faith by none other than Paul himself. That's a recommendation. Church history even suggests that this James was one so devoted to the church, so devoted to prayer, they would say his knees resembled the knees of camels. That's how devoted to prayer he was, constantly on his knees. So this is a James who, without saying, was very highly revered, thought well of in the church. Do you agree? But James doesn't use any of those things when he introduces himself. I'm struck by his humility as he points out a servant of God, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, James, an eyewitness to the resurrection. He doesn't say, James, the one who's a pillar of the faith. He doesn't even say, James, the half-brother of Jesus. Like, if I were the half-brother of Jesus, I'm just going to tell you, I'd probably lead with that. James introduces himself in a very humble way. And it is the only way for us to enter into this conversation around trials, with humility. We humble ourselves as we look forward at the text. But there's a second thing I gather from the first verse here, that he was also a servant of the Most High. You see, this also reinforces our emphasis on humility. It would be easier for me to say that when you face trials, you need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You need to face it head on, toe to toe. Just go at those trials, grab the bull by the horns, and deal with it. Because that's how I tend to respond to trials. 
Let's get in there. Let's get messy. Let's deal with these things. But James, as he is getting ready to communicate to the church encouragement in the midst of trials, he presents himself as a humble servant. He presents himself as a humble servant to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Here we find a reference to the 12 tribes, descendants, right, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, reminding us of the historical importance of Israel and their origin story, filled with trials and filled with wrong responses to trials, yes? So you can think back in all your Old Testament history. Did David handle that right? Was that the best way for Samson to deal with that? Was that a good thing that Jacob did there? Was that the best way for Abraham to deal with that pressure? Uh, you know, that, a lot of those things didn't work out so well, if you're picking up what I'm putting down there. But this letter is not to only the physical descendants of Abraham, just in case that throws you off to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. It's truly to those who by faith are in the line of Abraham who are dispersed. These are Christian Jews This is a Christian dispersion. Probably that same time period uh, was marked uh, in Acts 11.19. There were those who were scattered because of the persecution. So this is a time marked by persecution. This persecution arose over Stephen, and these individuals were scattered as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. And so James, wanting to encourage them in the midst of this trial and difficulty, this hardship, this suffering, this struggle, this challenge. Any other synonyms? Wanting to encourage them, he gives them some points of grace. It's against this backdrop of trials that he says to them, greetings, literally meaning rejoice, wishing them well, rejoice, And James is not being insensitive in this. He is wanting to encourage. And so in our text today, we'll look at three specific needs we have while facing the trials of life. Three, and there's many other needs that we have, but we'll look at three today. Three that we desperately need to endure trials well. Three graces that we need to truly exalt Christ in our struggles, to truly honor God when we're going through difficulties. When our faith is tested, how should we respond? The first is joy. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Make some observations with me here in the text. It says, Count it all joy. Count it to literally consider and evaluate, to digest and review your troubles. And to think upon them and deliberately, intelligently appraise them. There are some in the real estate business who understand the idea of an appraisal of a home. I was thankful myself to have an appraisal that lowered the value. That's always good. I like that. Always nice. But this idea of appraisal is to look at something and consider what is it worth. And the question that we should be asking ourselves if we are to be faithful to this text is what is our trial worth? What's its value? 
it doesn't always seem to add up, at least not when I try to count all the difficulties and struggles of Christians, of the church, and uh, those I love and care about, and I see the, the challenges with the health issues or struggling through things in their, their marriages and in their families, and I go, this just doesn't add up, God. How is this your church? How does this reflect your glory? Wouldn't you be most glorified if the church had nothing hampering her and she was just going forth in glorious victory? Well, certainly she is. Don't be confused. She's just doing so in the midst of these trials. Count it all joy. Add it up correctly. Apply, if I, if I can use the idea in a reverent way, apply the reality of Christ to the equation. It doesn't add up all the time, according to our own measurements, but in the Lord it adds up. And he says to count it all joy. And I'm so glad that it doesn't say only joy, because that would be difficult for me to comprehend how to do. It doesn't say that when you're in the midst of the worst thing ever that you could imagine in your entire life, your life's come to an end, that you count it only joy. That it isn't hard. We're not pretending that the hard things are just good. That the bad things are just good, only good. We're not pretending and just kind of wiping over, glossing over these difficult challenges. Ah, that's not so bad. Just fuck up. You're all right. <laughs> no, some of them are really bad, and they hurt, and you're laying on your face weeping, and you don't know what to do. And so you go to Scripture, and you say, Lord, like they prayed in the days of old, we don't know what to do, but Lord, we look to you. Hey, Lord, we need you. It's not like the song, don't worry, be happy, right? <laughs> it's not like that at all, although that is a good song. <laughs> it's catchy, right? But that's not the point. The point is, it's not like we just gloss over things and think that these trials aren't hard. I come to tears even, although just slightly, but just thinking of some of the challenges that we've all faced, some of those challenges we face together. God is sovereign in all those bad things, in all those hard things, and that is where the joy comes from. Pure joy, genuine joy, sincere joy, sheer joy, a true joy, a real joy. That is what comes from trials. So first, this grace we need is joy. How can we find joy in the midst of these trials? No matter what we face, no matter the type of trial, we consider it a joy and privilege to suffer like Christ. Just recall our Lord and Savior, how he suffered. Just remember him for a moment and the suffering he went through. Just remember his trials. It says here, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds all types of trials. None are outside of scope here. I imagine trials to be in this four-quadrant type of graph because I'm a graph and chart kind of guy. I like the little examples and textbooks where they put it in a picture. I like pictures. That's easier for me. I have trouble with all the words at times. 
But in this graph, you've got this idea of a trial that is, in one quadrant, very, very difficult, the hardest of trials. And then over here on the other side, you have trials that are very, very long, call them chronic, challenging and chronic. And then you have versions of trials that go on and on but are not that challenging. In this category falls the trials of marriage at times, the trials of parenting. They go on and on. Oh, they're not a big deal. It's just the little things. It's how you put the toilet paper roll. It's what the kid, when the kids just set you off in that moment. It's the little things, but they go on and they stretch and they wear at us. And then over here are like the really challenging ones that are very brief. And they hit us like a, a Texas storm blowing through, and then it's done, right? Uh, but then there are the challenges that just go on and on, and they're extremely difficult, and they're hard, and they weigh on us. Well, look, any of these trials, no matter how I describe them, whether in length or in difficulty, all of them fall in this category that we should count them as joy. How can James give us this command? How can trials possibly bring us to joy? That's the question I hinted at earlier, and that's the question I hope that we can unpack from the following verses. He says, to do this, count it all joy, my brothers. This is the grace you need in the midst of trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, other scripture would agree with this. Let me just read a few. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Here we are told, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. You see, it wasn't just James who had this idea, right? This is the Spirit of God speaking to them at this time to write it down for us. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 1 Peter 1, 6-7. I'm sure some of you expected I'd go here. In this you rejoice. Wow, all of these guys, they really had this uh, drilled into them, didn't they? It was like they had been through trials as well, and they had gone through difficulties, and God had given them grace as they counted it joy to suffer like their Savior. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, doesn't that sound a lot like your heart's desire, saint? Let me read it again. Praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Isn't that your desire? It does not come without trials. It does not come without difficulty to test the genuineness of your faith. I appreciate this imagery of the fire being refined, 
I love this idea. I read about it some time ago. I had to look it up because I couldn't remember the name of that specific metal. It's a shape memory alloy. I wasn't paying attention in science class, so I, I can Google it. Shape memory alloy. This is the most interesting metal to me because you can take and you can deform it, you can bend it, you can beat on it, and then you, you take that metal and you put it on heat. And it will revert to its original form. I went and watched videos of this. I don't know if any of you have the temptation of going on YouTube and watching awesome videos <laughs> over and over <laughs> of all these cool things that are out there. We have to keep that under control and submit it to Christ. Amen? That includes the great blogs and podcasts by wonderful theologians that are out there today. Right? All of that. Uh, we need to keep our priorities in the right spot. But this was neat to just see how this metal would just go back. It just... <laughs> like magic, but by design. And so it is for you, Christian. You have been formed and made by the work of God. You are his workmanship under good works. And by his grace and by his power, he's made you a new creature, you who believed upon him. And when you've been made a new creature, yeah, the world beats us up and bends us out of shape, even our, our loved ones and even in the church. But when the trial heat comes upon us, that's where the grace of God works and we come back into form. That's the grace of God at work in our lives. These trials, they test your faith, they produce steadfastness, and that steadfastness has its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Remember that Christ, for the joy set before him, despising the shame, endured the cross and is now, as we heard earlier, seated at the right hand of the Father. Scripture is clear. We have joy in trials because of what it's producing in us. Because we know that it produces a good thing. I will stand in line in the longest of lines if I know that at the end of that line I can get something I'd like. You fill in the blank. I don't know what jersey you're trying to get or what uh, latest electronic you're in line for or the release of some uh, new movie, but we will stand in line for some very novel yet nominal things. We're just in line, saints, in the long, long line of faithful Christians who've gone before you, enduring the trials, enduring the tests, Pressing on by the grace of God. Count it all joy. One last example. Consider even the giant sequoias. Have you seen these trees? They're amazing. I got to go over to California a number of times in my previous work. In fact, I think when I was here, that's when I was flying to California often, when I was here at the church in Austin. And I would see these giant sequoias on my trip. I'd fly into Fresno, and it's right there, not a long drive, and I'd go drive by and see them towering over all others, these redwoods. And these redwoods, they need heat, fire, actually, to release seeds from their cones. If a fire does not sweep through there, then those cones will not release the seeds, and they will not propagate. 
These fires, they expose the bare minerals in the soil so that the seedlings can take root. They clear out holes in the canopy so that the sun can get down to these little saplings. The intense heat of these fires produces the environment these trees need to grow and to mature. And so it is with the Christians. The intense heat and damage brings about the life and the growth. That is how we count it joy in the trials. Even the hottest of trials. It produces steadfastness. It says, and let steadfastness have its full effect. Our spiritual stamina is strengthened as we carry the weight of trials. Endurance, perseverance, literally the act of holding up under the weight of trial. It was asked even in the midst of a trial I had recently, how are you holding up? Well, I'm holding up fine, brother, by the grace of God, pressing on, continuing to move forward one step in front of the other. Because this steadfastness is not what the believer does by their own strength. This steadfastness is what they do is they're just looking to their Lord and Savior. Look, I've got nowhere else to go. This next step doesn't really seem so pleasant, but if I'm following my Savior, I don't really have any options before me. None that are good anyway. None that are going to be helpful for me. None that are really going to be joyful in the end. So this is... Where else can I go? You alone or Lord and Savior. Where am I going to turn? Lord, I'm following after you. Enduring, being perfected, I pray, matured, that is. Certainly, I am far from perfect. But perfected, shaped, not without flaw, but just growing in my biblical understanding and not theological understanding. That's not what I mean by that statement. That's important. Very important. But growing in my experiential knowledge of what it really means to go after Christ. Readied in this trial to face the next one. And I've gotten just enough trials under my belt. Very few. But just enough to look back and go, wow, that first trial was preparing me for that next one. And that trial was preparing me for this one. And this trial, my Lord, what do you have in store? I, don't, I won't look ahead. That's evil enough for itself, isn't it? But today, I'm going to look to you, Lord, and just ask you, mature me. Don't let this trial be a waste. This one you're in the midst of right now, whatever it is for you, learn in whatever situation you're in to be content. Learn to look to Christ and depend on Him. Learn to grow in what it means to have real relationship and communion with Christ. I thought five years ago the communion I had with Christ was sweet. And five years from that, now I go, wow, this is amazing. And five years from now, I just pray that it's all the more sweet and blessed to just sit before the Savior's feet, to just look at his word and go, wow, Lord, you are so amazing. You are so glorious. These trials are intended to mature us and to strengthen us. And that's our prayer. And one of my favorite, favorite, favorite John Newton hymns, the songwriter captures this idea. He imagines God saying to him, these inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free. 
and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may find thy all in me. Saints, we carry too much of ourselves into trials. Can I say that to you? I know it because that's what I do. I go in and I think, okay, time for me to handle this. I've got experience here. I've got knowledge here. I've got people that can support and fill in and do things. And we, we take these trials into our own hands and we say, I'm going to handle this. But remember what I started with, humility. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Humility to say, Lord, if I'm truly going to be complete, lacking in nothing, I must recognize that I am incomplete, lacking in everything. I want to be lacking in nothing. What about you? That sounds great. Well, it literally means to be well-rounded. Well-rounded. You see, we train leaders in my work and uh, we bring people in who can step into management roles and supervisory roles and as we're working with them we assess them and we say all right this person you know they're lacking in this area of uh, maybe that people skills <laughs> they're really sharp subject matter expert but they lack people skills and here's this other individual over here man they've got it all figured out and they're great with people but I can't ever get them to be on time. <laughs> and so that, that doesn't work too good. Uh, maybe we need to work on punctuality with them. And, and we, we assess these individuals to understand how well-rounded they are. Where are they lacking? Where do they need additional training? Well, if we do that in the secular workplace, how much more is our Lord shaping us for work in the body? Oh, well, He knows our hearts. He knows us inside and out, and he knows what the church needs. The needs we can't even see, he knows what the church needs. And so he's using these trials to shape us and conform us for his purposes in the body and his work in his kingdom. Joy. How long do you guys usually go? I don't want to take too much time. Okay, keep going? Okay, I'm going to keep going until he says stop. <laughs> Let's go, let's move on then to our second grace, that of wisdom. Wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, and I hope all of us immediately go, yep, that's me. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Now, counting it all joy is, is easy to preach, but much harder to live out, right? When you're in the moment, and you're hit with all these emotions and all of this turbulence and or when you're bearing under the weight that that longer trial and you're enduring and enduring and enduring you're like look i, I did i counted it all joy check <laughs> now i can complain a little right because this trial's been going on a long time well, let's use wisdom let's pray for wisdom but we, we don't have the wisdom we need we see in Scripture the way that God brings us to maturity. We go, yep, there it is. And we even fall sometimes into attitudes like, okay, I'll follow this three-step process, or if I start this book study, or if I, just, if I start doing this with the family, then my home's just going to feel super sanctified if I do devotions like this, 
right? right? Once I do family devotions like this, wow, this is going to be a God-honoring home, and, and the, all the bickering among the siblings is going to stop, and I'm never going to feel any conflict with my spouse, but we know that this isn't real. You know, yeah, yeah, it's not real, right? We know it's not. And so we need wisdom to take what we see in Scripture and to apply it, to put it into practice in each situation. Do not fall prey to just dealing with your trials like you just apply a medication. When I get a headache, I take a Tylenol, maybe two, right? And I just do that every time, and then the headache eventually fades away, and I'm good. Well, Scripture is not to be applied like that. It is prescriptive, but not in that way. It takes wisdom to apply God's Word. We can actually take God's Word, perfect and good as it is, right and holy, the very God-breathed Word, and we can apply it wrong to our situations. We can. Wisdom is knowing how to put God's Word into right practice. And how can we rightly apply God's Word to our situations? Well, by wisdom. And how can we get that wisdom? Well, you must ask. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Let him ask God. How do I apply your word to this situation? This is why the word of God never gets old. Not because I found yet another new theological truth, their doctrinal point. Not because I'm following the latest argument in evangelical mainstream and hashing it out with them in my mind. Right? I do that, <laughs> admittedly. I do that. But truly, wisdom is being able to do like the wise gardener. And he sees all these plants, and plants are different. A tomato plant is different than a pepper plant. And a pepper plant is different than a squash, and that's different than a cucumber. Yes, very basic. And those are all different than the flowers. Those have a different purpose, different than the herbs. So I just take the water hose and just apply the water you know, across the board. Doesn't matter. I'm not paying attention. Megan taps me on the shoulder, my dear wife, and she says, well, you need to water these more. You need to water these a lot less. You're drowning them. Yeah. Ah, okay. What wisdom, right? It's that simple. We need to ask God, how can we rightly apply your word to these situations and these trials so that we can handle them in a way that honors you? But what is our confidence that we will receive what we ask for? How do we know that God will give us this wisdom? James doesn't seem to hesitate. He says, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. James has a confidence in the character of God and in God's love for his children. God gives generously to all without reproach. There have been times when the kids have caught me in the midst of trying to finish up a sermon prep or some thing for work where I've had to just give them what they wanted with reproach. <laughs> You're not supposed to interrupt daddy <laughs> and you need to go and yes, you can do that. That's fine. Go play outside. Right? God gives generously without reproach. We can come to him and he will give us the wisdom we need. This is why, as I was pointing out earlier, reading God's word never grows old. 
Because we're going again and again looking for wisdom. The Spirit of God will show us what we need for the trial. I think sometimes we get a little caught up in saying, well, I need a pastor to show me. I'm going to tell you as a pastor, we're no different than you, (laughs) in that we're just going to God's Word and saying, Lord, show us the wisdom. Now, I'm not downplaying gifts to the church and the help of pastors. That's not what I intend to do. I'm just trying to encourage that we should not stop short of going right to God through his word and say, Lord, give me wisdom. Give me help. Our God is a God who, if you might recall, he does not lie. And if his word says he'll give us wisdom, then I can tell you with certainty and confidence he will give you the wisdom you need. Doesn't he know our every need before we ask? Isn't our God a God who we can cast all our cares and anxieties on? That's what James is pointing us to, the character of God, the source of grace. He knows the number of hairs on our head, and he would not give us a rock when we ask for bread. James affirms that we should ask God because God is a God who gives generously. And I want you to remember that about our Lord and Savior. He is a generous God. He is a God who gives generously without reproach. There's no hand slap. There's no scolding. Sure, we just asked yesterday. Yes, I know, we're coming again. The trial's going on and on, and you're wearing thin, like my favorite shirt that I just can't give up, right? It wears thin, these trials do, and we grow tired and sore. But we can go and ask God again for grace. We can go and ask God again for help in our time of need, and he will certainly give. But, it says in verse 6, let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. How can we doubt so great a God? Well, pause for a minute and look at your own heart. Certainly the fault's not in God, yes? The fault's with us. We doubt. I doubt. I'm looking at I think I'll just quit. I'll just sit down and let the church do its thing. It's too much trouble dealing with Christians and difficulty. I felt that. But that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So let's repent of that and go forward asking without doubt. As the saying goes, I thought this was clever and helpful, ask with doubt, go without, ask and believe, you will receive. It's helpful. We doubt in a number of ways by thinking we can solve it on our own, we apply all kind of temporary fixes, like putting a Band-Aid on a leak on the Hoover Dam. We think that we can find this solution all on our own. If I just meditate and clear my mind, that's one thing I've heard a lot lately. I just need to get away and clear my mind. No, you don't need to get away and clear your mind. You need to get away and fill your mind with God's Word. That's what we need. Oh, the world. The world and all its pleasures, money, status. Well, these things are offered as fixes, solutions to your trials. 
Oh, if we just had these kinds of resources, our trial would melt away. No, it wouldn't. No, it wouldn't. Not if you believe that God is a faithful God who is sovereignly working to bring you into trials and tribulations and difficulties to shape you and form you for his glory. Because if God is truly doing that in you, brothers and sisters, then it doesn't matter what resources you have or don't have, what state you live in or don't live in, what situation you find yourself in. If you are truly a child of God, then he will be working in your life regardless. And these worldly things, well, some may use them to provide a way of escape when troubles come, but they don't truly get you away. Certainly, I can speak to in my life before conversion, a desire to escape difficulties and struggles through all kinds of uh, substance or sex or things along those lines. But by the grace of God, he transformed me, brought me from this place of darkness into this kingdom of light. And here in this kingdom of light, we don't deal with our troubles by going to the world's pleasures. We deal with our troubles by going to God, asking for wisdom. We don't doubt, thinking, well, maybe I need God plus this and that in my life to be happy. We don't need to be happy. We need to be holy, and that's what God's doing. Not double-minded, but with a single-minded confidence in Christ, in a God who loves you and who wants to glorify his perfect and holy name in and through you. So James, he draws our attention to the fact that we need joy in our trials. We need that grace. We need wisdom in our trials. In verse 9 through 11, we see our third grace. And it comes to us in the form of a comparison. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Here you have the lowly brother on one side and the rich on the other. I do believe that both of these are brothers as I look close at the text. I know some would suggest that the rich here is the unsaved and the lowly here is the saved. I don't see that contrast as I look closely and have spent time reviewing this. But I see two brothers, a rich one and a poor one. This text really is counterintuitive as I look at it and review it. Like much of Christian living, up is down, first is last, and it kind of boggles us paradoxically. But it's just, again, showing us our need for humility. You may have noticed I started with humility, and I'm going to wrap up the points with humility. Because humility is one of these graces that eludes us oh, too easily. The moment we're convinced we're humble is when it slips through our fingers. And then we have false humility. So we can have a humility that looks humble, that acts humble even, yet in our hearts we are not bowing before the King of Kings. That is the source of true humility, a servant of the Lord. But here is the lowly brother boasting in his exaltation. 
And when you're brought low, it's easy to develop all kinds of self-pity, to daydream of riches, imagining, you know, once you get that job, once you get that promotion, once you get that raise, once you get that dream house, once you have what you've been hoping for, then you'll be satisfied. Then you'll be pleased. Then you'll be able to really serve the Lord. That's how we whitewash that one, right? When as a church we have this building over here, or when we get that long-term established pastor, I'm not picking on you guys, speaking from my own experience as well. I'm just saying there's a way in which we can make even good things a form of self-pitying. And we forget to just humble ourselves before God. And so I remind you, just as you have been humble for many months and for a long time, a long, long time in service, continue in this humility by looking to Christ and exalting in this lowness. Then you'll be guarded from trials and arrive at a place of ease, truly. A place where you're resting in Jesus. Where you're at peace in the Lord. You know, resting in the things of this world will leave you woefully unprepared. Woefully unprepared when the trials come. We need to be holding on to this world with a loose grip. Boast in his exaltation. What exaltation? Have you thought about that? What exaltation? Well, if you didn't know this, Christian, in Christ we are positionally found in him, who is, as we read earlier, seated at the right hand of the Father. There's an exaltation to be in Christ. We are kings and priests unto God. We should boast in this. Boast like Paul did in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And I'm quite certain that James had his half-brother's words in mind here as he penned these. He was probably thinking upon our Lord and Savior's words, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Boast in your exaltation saints. And the rich brother boasts in his humiliation. Again, this counterintuitive approach. Why rejoice or boast in this, this humiliation? Well, he tells us why. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. Do you think upon this? It's all throughout scripture. Life is short. The wildflowers on the highway in Texas are only there for a short amount of time, aren't they? Before that heat comes up, scorches everything, withers it all away, and it's just a brown field. Life's short and full of trouble, and James, he would have us to remember that this is just a brief time. So, whether rich or poor, 
lowly, it says here. Humility is needed to endure the trials, no matter the life circumstances. God gives grace, James says a little later, God gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud. So in close, brothers and sisters, God calls us to ask of him that which we need. Ask for wisdom. Ask for wisdom that you might count it all joy. Pray for humility. Ask the Lord for every grace in the midst of trials. It's the only way to grow in true spiritual maturity. Ask the Lord to give him fresh glimpses of himself, that you would see him and know him, that you would truly count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. I pray that the God of all comfort would strengthen and sanctify us in Christ Jesus, even through trials. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your word and for the grace that you give us in it, Lord. I just pray that you would help us to press forward and to continue to look to you in all things, Lord. We thank you for the great salvation that you've worked in our lives, in our hearts, Lord, and how you've made us new creatures. You've called us to serve you and to follow you, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would give strength to each of the saints here to lift one another's drooping hands and to continue to exhort one another while it's still today, Lord. Would you guard from the deceitfulness of sin, the dullness of hearing, Lord, and would you continue to guide your body to do your work, to be a faithful witness of your mercy and of your grace, Lord. For your glory and for your namesake, we pray.